We're going to look at two of the seven signs in the Gospel of John. If you remember back from week one, uh, John was a curator of signs. He collected a group of these signs and put them together by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and put them in this book specifically for the purpose of the reader to read and consider the claims that he's making. Jesus is, in fact, the Son of the living God, Son of the Most High, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. The whole point of his writing this is that you would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So two of those signs we get to see on display this morning. He's going to heal an official son in Cana, and then Jesus is going to heal a man who is at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. We're going to see two of those seven signs. Now here's what's interesting. We're going to see two very different responses to those signs. And these responses are representative responses because today, in our world, we still see these responses. People respond to the work of God. They read the scriptures. They see the work of Jesus. They see Him resurrected and they respond with belief, believing in Him, or they respond with disbelief. They don't believe in Him. And we're going to see very different responses to these two signs. We're going to see one that's exemplar. We, we want to follow the example of the official whose son was healed. He believes his entire household. And we want to believe even more this morning. Trust in Jesus afresh and anew. Not get saved again, but trust in Him over and over again. We continue to come to Him day in and day out. And what we want to avoid is responding like the Pharisees. If you know the Scriptures at all, the Pharisees are, are people who make a... Um, uh, who, they're not worth emulating, I guess we could say. We don't want to respond like the Pharisees. And there's a group of religious leaders here today who they see a man get healed and they get, they get angry with Jesus about it. And that's not what we want to do. We don't want to respond to the work of Jesus with anger. It, it can, it's pretty simple, right? We want to respond to Jesus in the right way and we don't want to respond to Jesus in the wrong way. So two signs. Now Jesus is going to make a lot of claims about himself. He's going to claim in this passage to be God. In fact, the title of the sermon today is Jesus is God. Pretty simple. Jesus is God. He makes these claims, but he doesn't leave those claims unauthenticated. He makes claims and then authenticates the claims with signs. There are at least 15 people in this world today that claim to be God. Right now. You just Google, and that's all that Google brings up. There's probably more than 15. But there's at least 15 According to the World Wide Web, people who claim to be God. Well, are their claims authenticated or are they not? Are they just the rant rantings of a madman? Well, with Jesus, we're faced with a reality. He is who he says he is or he is not who he says he is. He is God or he isn't God. And so we've got to see, did Jesus authenticate the claims that he made or did he just make some claims? Okay. So he doesn't just simply leave us with claims. He gives us some signs. First, John chapter 4. We're going to start in John chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 46 down through verse 54. And we're going to look at the second sign in the gospel. The first one being turning water into wine. The second one being in the same community. Starting in verse 46 where he heals the official son. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official son who was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went with him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he believed in all his household. This was how the second sign that Jesus did. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So... Last week, we saw Jesus on this mission trip to the city of Sychar. He goes to the well, and at this well, he meets a woman, a woman whose reputation was not that great. 
I've left that day to go get some water. She comes and she meets the living water that Jesus offers. She meets Jesus himself. And she is sent back into the city a different woman. So she walks out with not this great reputation, but walks back into town. And she's a changed woman so much so that the city is listening to her. And many in the town of Sychar believed because of that woman's testimony. Jesus continues this mission trip up north. And he finally makes his way to Galilee. And what's interesting about this whole thing is that after he gets done with this activity in Galilee, he goes right back to Jerusalem. Now this is a long journey. It's more than 30 miles and it's heavy terrain. He's now going downhill as he goes to Galilee and he's going to turn around and he goes up through Samaria. He's going to go literally up to Jerusalem. So he's going to go up. So this trip is not, again, some leisurely just trip with his disciples. There is intentionality to the trip. He intentionally went to the well outside of the city of Sychar. He was there following the will of his heavenly Father, and he was bringing revival to that little community. And then God the Father sent him up to Galilee before he was to come back to the festival in Jerusalem. So what is this activity going to be in Galilee? What was the purpose of God the Father sending him there? Well, it was a very specific purpose. It was to do something for a man who was desperate. We've got a lot of babies running around here. We've had a lot of sickness recently, okay, flu season. If you got through the season without the flu, you're probably one of the few. I don't know what the percentages are, but if your kids made it through, if you have young kids without getting the flu, then definitely you're in the minority, uh, or at least some sort of bug. But this man was at a point of desperation because his son was at the very point of death, and uh, I don't want to have to bring you to a dark or very difficult place necessarily, but if you could imagine the state of this man looking at his boy and feeling desperate and hopeless because his boy was at the point of death and this man could do nothing for his son, I think you can just simply understand the desperation. Um, the tears that have been cried, the prayers that have been prayed, the medical, he's an official so he has some sort of means Maybe the medical um, things that he'd already tried, the doctors that he have, he's maybe talked to. He's a point of desperation. He hears that Jesus has come to Galilee. Rumors have spread about the miracle that he did at the wedding already a while back. And here is this Jesus again. Maybe he, if he turned water into wine, maybe he can heal my son. So he goes and he finds Jesus. He goes to look for Jesus, to ask would you heal my son? The official asks the question. And Jesus responds in verse 48 in a weird way. Jesus has a way of doing this yet again. He did it last week with the woman at the well. Go and call your husband. You're right, I have no husband. Or when she looks at him and says, hey, give me this water. He says, yeah, if you knew who it was who was asking you for water, I would have given living water. And he confuses her. The same thing, same thing is happening in this passage as well because he asked Jesus to heal his son and then Jesus responds in verse 48 with a really odd statement. seems to be out of the blue. You won't believe unless you see signs. You won't believe unless you see signs. It's interesting. He simply asked, heal my son. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe in verse 48. Well, undeterred, the father in verse 49 simply just comes back. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. It's like he doesn't even acknowledge what Jesus just said. I'm here for my son's sake, okay? That's, that's what I'm here for, and I'm, I'm pleading with you, Jesus. Do something for my son. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Now, this is fascinating to me. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, Jesus just told him, that he would not believe unless he saw signs and wonders. And then the man believes before he saw the signs and wonders. Isn't that strange? Doesn't that seem a little strange? Now, what's happening in this passage is a similar thing that's happening in all of the Gospel of John. There's true belief and false belief in the Gospel of John. Okay? Okay? Or we could say it like this. There are people who believe in Jesus for miracles, and then there are people who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And there's a difference there. And what Jesus is pointing us to is something beyond simply believing that Jesus can do what He says He can do. 
So Jesus is telling the man, okay, you may believe in me, like believe that I can heal your son, but unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe that I'm the, the Messiah. Well, that's exactly what happens. When Jesus says something will happen or something can't happen, he's right. So we see that he believed the word that his son was going to be healed. And then we find out that the boy is healed. Now, when the servants come running to him to find the man, they were so excited and they were so confident that this little boy was healed, the servants left his side, left him in some other care, and came and found the man, their, their leader, their, their master. They came and found this man, the official. And can you imagine the joy in the man's heart? He believed Jesus, but then not only did he believe he was going to heal him, it actually happened. It actually happened. My son, who is at the point of death, is now well. Now, dads, mamas, when your son or daughter starts acting themselves again after being sick, I mean, isn't that great? I mean, they were down in the dumps for a week or however long it was. They just weren't acting themselves, their self, and then they got well and they started acting themselves like themselves again. And just the joy of that. Well, imagine this, just the elation of this official. Like Jesus really did. Without even having to go to, to touch him or do anything, with just a word, with just a word, in a different location, healed my little boy. Now imagine the joy that must have flooded his heart. Now, here, here is the way we should react. And this is the way that non-believers, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, should react even to this book, the Gospel of John. They should consider the signs that Jesus did. That He actually healed this little boy with a word. This wasn't a magic trick. This wasn't coincidental. Jesus healed the boy. He's healed. He's recovered. He's well. With just a word. No medication, no nothing. Healed. And this man responds in the right way. And as we read the Gospels, as we come through this book, as we come to passages like this, we should consider again this Jesus who heals, this Jesus who can do anything, and our faith should be built inside of us. I want you to see how he responds. Verse 53. The father knew that it was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And now, here we go. Now, he doesn't just believe that Jesus would heal his son. Now, he believes in a different way. And he believed, he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come to Judea to Galilee. So this is a representative reaction to the work of Jesus. We come to the Bible, we're exploring the scriptures, we're our faith is building. We should respond with faith, with belief, trust. Jesus is who He says He is. This man and his whole family believed. Even today, we should see these signs. This is no less a sign for us than it was for this man. Certainly more personal for this man. But it is no less of a sign to us today, even though we're a couple thousand years removed. We should look at this and consider Jesus really, truly is God. He healed this little boy. And I want you to consider this point. The means by which God brought salvation to this household. Okay? The means by which God brought good, eternal good, to this household, to this man who is in agony, to this little boy who is sick to the point of death. The means that God brought the family to faith was the sickness of this little boy. You can play the if-then game with almost anything. But in this scenario, if this little boy was not sick, the family would not have believed in him. There would have been other means because this family was the Lord's. There would have been other ways for Jesus to come. But in this particular case, a means by which God brought beauty out of a hard situation was through this little boy's sickness. Now, here's the, the truth. We don't want to get in a game where we're trying to figure out why, why people are sick, why people aren't sick, that sort of thing. But God can bring beauty and has purposes in things that we think are only the, the work of the enemy. And we just see it, and as we look, we don't understand, we don't know what's going on, my little boy's sick. But God is doing literally billions of things behind the scenes. We don't know why. We cry out to the Lord. We cry out even for healing according to the Scripture's command in John chapter five, or James chapter 5. But in this case... God was bringing salvation to this little boy's home, bringing Jesus there, bringing faith into this household through this little boy's sickness. Now, if that's not amazing, 
The fact that God can do that. This is, this is our God who can do anything. Who makes a habit of doing what the enemy is do, intending for harm and God intends it for good. So the enemy has an intent with it and God has an intent with it. The enemy or the flesh, evil, God's intent with it, good. In this instance, we found out what the good was. In your instance, we may never know. But I think we can trust with passages like this. Okay, wait a minute. God, God is doing something. I may not know exactly what he is doing. So this is the representative reaction one. Faith in Jesus. Look at the sign, believe. And if you're in this room today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to believe in Jesus. Jesus is who he says he is. He is God. And he really healed this little boy. And it either happened or it didn't. And that's a decision that you've got to come to. To come to the point where you say, I reject it. I don't believe that. It, it really didn't happen. Or if it did, you have to reconcile then the claims that Jesus made with your disbelief. Believe in Jesus. This is the call. Sign number one. Now, sign number two that we're going to look at today is in a different community. But it's going to show us a reaction, a representative reaction that's quite different. And the healing happens in Jerusalem. So now, uh, the, the mission trip to bring revival to Sychar, to save the woman of ill repute, to go into Galilee and to heal the man's son, the official son, and bring salvation to that household, that mission trip is concluded, and the father now is sending the son back down to Jerusalem. He's going to turn, or excuse me, back up, so he's going south, but he's going north, like walking way. So he's going to take the hike with his disciples. They're going to go back to Jerusalem, and there's going to be a very interesting scene. And Jesus like he does so often in this gospel, he's going to intentionally do some things on the Sabbath to ruffle a few feathers. I love that Jesus is like that. He's not looking for a fight, but he sure, certainly won't run for, from a fight. And actually, sometimes he picks a fight. But we're going to look at the third sign in the gospel of John, the second sign that we're looking at today. Look at chapter 5. We're going to, we're to start with verses 1 through 7. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these, days, or in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another step steps down before me. So here's the scene. There is an area, uh, it's almost like a quarantine area, by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. The Pool of Bethesda is there. And there are lame, not lame like really boring people, but sick, okay, people who are laying there. And it, it's a graphic scene. It's not clean. I mean, if you can get a kind of a mental picture, it's, it's very stinky. There's no air conditioning in those days. There's no regular bathing in those days. Thankful for the day I live in, by the way. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty bleak scene. And there's a man there who's been an invalid for 38 years. Laying there for 38 years. Now, in verse 4, if you know in your Bible, it's either parentheses there or it's in the bottom of your Bible because it that verse had been added years later by a scribe trying to explain what's the deal with the waters being stirred here. But basically, from what I understand, is either there was some sort of angel that did come down that God sent to intentionally bring healing once a year. That's a possibility. God can do what he wants to do. Either an angel would go down to this pool and stir the waters, and all these invalids and all these sick people are kind of watching this, and if the waters were being stirred, they would do whatever they could to try to get in it because the belief was if I would be the first one in, I would be healed. So this is either folklore that was added years later, or it was something that was true. It really happened, one of the two. Jesus comes, and he asks this just almost insidious question. He asks the man, do you want to be healed? Now, it's fascinating because there's a multitude, and Jesus goes to one. This man doesn't come to Jesus. Jesus comes to the one. 
It wasn't as if there was a multitude and this one man saw Jesus and he kind of mustered up all the strength that he could get and kind of stood up and made his way over to Jesus and and whispered in his ear, Jesus, would you do something for me? This man was laying down and for some reason or another, Jesus looks to that one. It's like he sees this one man and he walks over. He knows he's been there a long time and just asks, do you want to be healed? Now that's a pretty simple Question, do you want to be healed? The natural response you would think would be, yeah, of course. But remember, this man's in a spiritual epicenter around a pool, and he's probably dealt with the desire to be healed for all these 38 years. You imagine the emotional toll that that would take on a man who's been laying around in filth and grime with other sick people for so long, And time and time again, his only hope, he thinks, is this pool of water here. And he can't get there. I mean, he doesn't even answer Jesus the right way. He just makes an excuse and he says, I just can't even get to the waters. He doesn't even answer the simple question. He doesn't even say yes. Just yes. And Jesus is going to do something. But I want to take a little detour and I want to talk for a second about this idea of faith and healing. And there's a lot of differing opinions on faith and healing in our world today. And we have seen in our midst signs and wonders type healing. We prayed for, um, for Patty Claude a year and a half ago. And whether it was through those prayers or other pray- prayers, she was healed of cancer. Just healed. Um, like the reports in the reports. Healed. And then there's been some other instances and other people that we've prayed for. And there wasn't healing at least in the way that we prayed for. There certainly is healing. All Christians, by the way, get healing in a resurrected body. It's just a matter of time. hope we get that. But the timing issue is is up to the Lord. And I think there's a passage that can help us understand some things here. Because here in a second, I'll go ahead and give you the spoiler here. Jesus is going to heal this man. Okay, So that's the spoiler. He's going to heal this man. But what I want you to see is it's not formulaic. The work of God can't be put together and then just kind of put in a binder in a one, two, three order and then hand it out and say, if you'll just do this and then this and then finally this, then you'll get the results that you want. God is radically free. Jesus is radically free. And anytime we think we kind of get the formula down, he does something a little bit different. Okay? Now, it's fascinating. I want you to turn to Matthew 9. So keep your finger in John chapter 5. And I want you to turn over to the left to Matthew chapter 9. So Jesus saw the one man, asked the question, and we're going to see in a minute that this man does nothing that you're supposed to do to get healed. He doesn't do any of it right. The invalid for 38 years doesn't even answer yes to the question about healing. (laughs) Screws it all up. We'll see in a second. But I want to take this detour and show you there isn't a magic formula. And I want to look at four instances, three of which are in Matthew chapter 9. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Verse, we'll start in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is fascinating. We have an example here of what's called, what we could call almost, intercessory faith. A group of people who believed Jesus, believed Jesus on behalf of somebody else, believed that Jesus could and would do something for someone else. This is our prayers. We're praying, God, would you bring this? Would you intervene? Would you save? Would you deliver? Would you heal? Would you, God, please, would you do this? We're trusting intercessory prayers slash faith that God would do something for this paralytic. And then Jesus says, so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins here because that's the bigger point of, way bigger point than physical healing on this earth because there's multitudes of people who have been physically healed who don't believe in Jesus. By the way, we'll see that here in a little bit. But the point of these miracles is to authenticate an even greater miracle in the fact that Jesus forgives sins. He forgives sinners. He saves. 
And he has the authority to do this. And so to show that he has the authority to forgive sins, he heals this man. And this man showed no faith whatsoever. All we know is the faith of the people who brought him. Intercessory faith. So it's not a formula. This man, have you ever heard a formula to, to get healing or get God to do something that you want to do? Get a bunch of people around you who will pray for you and you don't believe any of it. And then God will do it. But here, the faith of the man isn't mentioned at all. Now in verse 2, or excuse me, the second point that I want you to see in these four types of faith, the second one I want you to see is in verse 21 of chapter 9. I want you to see this. Now this... This verse is going to be the verse that you recognize this that's most often turned into a formula. That's most often turned into a formula to get God to do what you feel like God should do. Verse 21. And we don't need to disregard it because it's here. Verse 21. There had been a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She saw Jesus and knew that Jesus would be able to heal her. In verse 21, she says this. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment... I will be made well. Will. No doubt. She knew. There wasn't a doubt in her mind. There wasn't a question internally to her. She knew if I touch just the fringe of His garment, Jesus will heal me. It's absolutely there. And here's what so often happens with this particular point. We turn all of our prayers, all of faith, all of our requests to the Lord, and we use this as a template to, we, to ask God anything that we ask Him. I'm going to believe that you will, and I've heard it time and time again. Faith is not believing God is able to do something. Faith is asking God and believing that He will, will do something. You've heard it too, right? Well, partly true. That's partly true. Because Jesus says about this woman, knowing for certain that Jesus would make her well, he calls it faith. This is faith on display. Jesus turned in verse 22 and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. This is faith. So we have intercessory faith that led to healing. The men who brought the paralytic to Jesus. Now, we have what we could call certain faith. No doubt. This isn't something that was mustered up inside this woman. She kind of like, I know he will. I know he will. I know he will. She knew for certain. He will make me well. Third example in Matthew chapter 9. Look at verse 28 and 29. And I tell you this because I want this to be helpful for you. I want you, as you're praying for healing, you're asking God to do something, or trusting in the Lord to work, I want you to both pray prayers of, of request and certainty when God gives faith, and then also I want you to be able to submit to the will of the Lord. Because with the multitude who were laying there, it wasn't Jesus' will to heal every one of them. It was His will to heal, heal one of them. And so we look at this, I will be made well, she says. Jesus calls it faith. But now in verse 28 and 29, we have something else. When Jesus entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to him, or when the man entered the house, excuse me, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to him, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your Faith, be it done for you. And their eyes were opened. Now, what did Jesus ask them? Did he ask them, do you know that I will do this for you? Or did he ask him, do you believe that I am able to do this? I believe that I'm able to do this. And they looked at him and they said, yes, Lord, we believe that you're able. And Jesus calls this faith. According to your faith, be it done to you. This is a categorically different than the two previous examples in the chapter, and yet they're all called faith. And then, I think we have to look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, when Jesus prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
I think we have to see that surrendering faith or submitting faith is faith as well. Even though it's not called faith, what Jesus did in the garden, what greater example is there of faith in the love of the Father that you could submit to His will even when you prayed to, that it would be different. He submitted in the garden of Gethsemane to His Father. Now, I tell you all this because I want you to understand that faith is a gift. Not just faith like in salvation, that uh, Ephesians chapter 2 kind of faith, and this is from God, uh, it is a gift of God that no man may boast, like faith being a gift, okay, to believe. But also, faith in other situations in our life is not something that is mustered up. It's something that's given from above. And if you're praying over a particular situation and you don't know what to pray for, then it may be that you need to pray a prayer of submission like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Or it may be that you need to pray a prayer like the men in verse 28 and 29 and pray, God, I believe you're able. Jesus, you're able here. I don't know exactly what you're going to do, but I I know that you're able. And you know what? Then there's going to be rarer instances when God gives you a certain and specific faith where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this prayer is going to be answered. Where you pray and you know Jesus is going to do this right now and there's no doubt whatsoever. And there's been instances like that in my life. To be honest, the prayer when we prayed uh, for healing over Patty, I didn't have that sort of faith. Maybe the others did. Maybe Andy, maybe the others did who were around her praying. I had a Jesus, you're able to do this kind of faith that day. And He healed. But there's going to be days, and there are days, and I've prayed, and I know for a fact God will answer this prayer. Period. Now, the difference is not that one day I was standing on God's promises more than another day, or that I had clenched my fist or mustered it up and said, like, faith, 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 that day. The difference is that God was giving me something that I needed in that moment to pray a prayer of faith. So what about John chapter 5? Does it fit into any of these categories in Matthew chapter 9? Or is it something different? You see, we just can't nail it down and say, like, if we just get this right, or we get the formula down, we will get Jesus finally in this neatly drawn picture or this neatly wrapped box. Jesus is so much bigger than that. <laughs> I love it. John 5. Back to John 5. We're back to the one man. What category does this story fit? None of them. None of them. The man doesn't even come to Jesus. Jesus goes to the man out of the multitudes. And then what does he do? Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed. And walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Now, this wasn't some partial healing, like, well, I wonder if he was healed, or this isn't a wheelchair moment where the person stumbled across the stage. This was instantaneous, healed. Picked up his bed, walked, healed. Muscles, joints, all of this came back. It's like in an instant, the man who couldn't walk or was laying down for 38 years, it's like the disfor- disfiguredness, dysmorphia, whatever that is. The dis- you know when your muscles shrink from disuse? Okay? Can you imagine the muscles and the tendons and all of that just growing back? And he stands up in that very instant, takes his bed, and he walks. Now, what formula is there? Nothing. Jesus is absolutely and totally free to do what He wants when He wants. He simply healed the man. And it would be quite understandable and it would fit some sort of category we would think if He is the one, like I said, the man, the invalid, who had the twinkle in his eye, saw Jesus and said, I just know if I can get to Him, He will heal me. But that's not what happened at all. Jesus didn't desire to heal everyone in that, at that pool. He, deci- he desired and willed to heal that man at the pool. And so he went to him. And he healed one man. 
Now this is interesting. A.W. Pink says this. Hang with me. The sovereignty of God is strikingly illustrated in the passage before us. There lay a great multitude of impotent folk. They were all equally needy, all equally powerless to help themselves. And here was the great physician, God himself, God incarnate, infinite in power, with inexhaustible resources at his command. It had been just as easy for him to have healed the entire company as to make a single individual whole, but he did not. For some reason, not revealed to us, he passed by the great multitude of sufferers. What by? And he singled out one man. Friends, this is why the love of God can be so offensive. Because we don't want God to love us particularly. We get offended that he doesn't love everybody else the same way that he loves me. But the particular, God loves everybody, but not the same way. He loves his bride. He loves his bride specially. And he, it's like we, we won't let him give us, it's like we get frustrated if he wants to love us specially. What? But in the same way he walked past these, and this man could have been frustrated and like, well, why didn't you just heal everybody, Jesus? Why did you come to me? But he received what Jesus did for him. Singled out one healed him. There is nothing whatever in the narrative that indicates that this certain man was any different from the others. We are not told that he turned to the Savior and cried, Have mercy on me! He was just as blind as were the others to divine glory of the one who stood before him. Even when asked, this is amazing, do you want to be healed? He evidenced no faith whatsoever. And after he had been healed, he witnessed he didn't even know who it was that healed him. We'll see in a second. It is impossible to find any ground in the man himself as a reason for Christ singling him out for special favor. The only explanation is the mere sovereign pleasure of Christ himself. Jesus looked at that man with compassion. He said, do you want to be healed? Can your Jesus do that? Or does he have to do that for everybody? He's the only Jesus we got. Jesus is free. Andy pointed out something so cool about this passage this week to me. He, Jesus didn't just say, be healed, but he said, get up, take up your bed and walk. Take up your bed. Well, this was on the Sabbath. The healing is on the Sabbath. And one of the Jewish men, one of the Jewish man-made law books, the Mishnah Shabbat, in the Mishnah Shabbat 7.2, carrying anything from one place to another on the Sabbath is strictly forbidden. It reads exactly, we read on, that on the Sabbath, carrying from one domain to another is strictly forbidden. Jesus, knowing his audience, says, get up and walk. Take your bed. On the Sabbath, knowing that it would violate man-made rules, these man-made rules that were made by the Jews, there were rules to keep the rules. If they could keep these rules, then they would keep the Ten Commandments. They would keep the, the Mosaic Law. If they would keep these laws, then we would keep these laws. Just laws, 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 laws. So they made up some laws. Not necessarily bad things, but not from God. Well, Jesus does not put up with religiosity. He doesn't have to abide by man-made rules or laws. And so Jesus, in this response, not just, saving, or not just healing this man, but He's going after religious ideals. He's doing something here. He's showing that there is a priority here that needs to be put front and center over man-made law. And we see the sad blindness of the Jewish religious leaders in verse 9 through 13. Look with me. In 9b, now that day was Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. 
It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. <laughs> this is unbelievable. So uh, there is a, a, a young man named Costi Hinn. He's Benny Hinn's nephew. Uh, Benny Hinn's nephew uh, it was the son of Benny Hinn's brother. Okay, so that's how that relationship works. Nephew, son, brother. Okay, there we go. Benny Hinn's brother was a healing guy, just did the exact same thing Benny Hinn did. And Costi Hinn traveled the world with his uncle Benny. Uh, when he was in high school, he was driving a Bentley um, and uh, wore Armani undershirts. Is that what it was, Ryan? We listened to this podcast. I think it was Armani undershirts. Okay? Yeah, Armani undershirts. Like $100 undershirts. All right? Uh, Living large. All right? It was this passage that God used to break Costi Hinn. Costi Hinn is now a pastor, and he wrote a book called Defining Deception, where he called out lovingly his father and his uncle. And there's been God working in those two men. Um, but Costihin read this because he saw in verse 11 something amazing, or excuse me, verse, um, verse 13, because the man had been healed, he did not know who he was. This man who was healed didn't even know who Jesus was. And Costihin just wept. He said he just cried and cried and cried because they had been telling people for years this formula that you have to, and this man gets healed by not even knowing who Jesus was. And he was given this formula, if you'll just have faith, if you'll just have faith, if you'll just have faith, Jesus will give you health, and he will give you wealth, and he will give you a long life, and he will give you everything that you've dreamed of. If you'll just dream bigger, and if you'll get bigger dreams and give them to God, then Jesus will do this for you. He said he read this passage, he just wept. Just wept. He said it broke him, because this man didn't even know who Jesus was, and Jesus healed him. This was the passage that God used to bring Benny Hinn's nephew out of that nonsense. Who told you this? The man didn't even know who Jesus was. But I want you to see how crazy this is. Instead of being joyful, the religious leaders, instead of being joyful and celebratory for this man, they bring condemnation his way. Instead of looking at him and being so excited, yes, you're healed, are you kidding me? High five, you've been laying there for so long, oh my goodness, what are you going to do now? You have a new go at it, You'll go get him, buddy, way to go, you, this is great. Instead of doing that, they say, what are you carrying your bed for? It's the Sabbath. They bring condemnation to this man because he was breaking their rules. They cared more about the rules that they had made up than they cared for people. This is a tendency today. If we're not careful, we're quick with making rules. We'll miss people because they don't look the way we look or talk the way we talk. or We're good at making up our own rules. We still do this as churches and church today. But they couldn't even celebrate because they were offended that, he, that Jesus had the audacity to not respect their rules. They wanted Jesus in their own image. They were blind. Well, Jesus in verse 14 doesn't stop there. He goes and finds this man because this man still doesn't know who Jesus is. He's healed, but he doesn't know who Jesus is. And not every person that, that, that Jesus healed believed in his name. Now remember, in Jerusalem, Jesus healed multitudes. I mean, hundreds if not thousands of people. Over and over again, we see in the Gospels where he healed them all. He healed them all. He healed them all. Multitudes. How many believers were there in Jerusalem after he was crucified and resurrected? 120. Where were all these people that were healed? Because it was a city who was chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. I have to assume there were some people who were healed by him who thought maybe he did this in a demonic way, but they didn't apparently believe in him. I'll take your healing, Jesus. But if I have to die for you, forget it. There were many who were healed by Jesus who didn't follow Jesus, who didn't repent of their sins, 
Remember the kids' song. There were ten that were healed and only one came back. Healed, but not follow. And there are still people today that want what Jesus can give them, but they don't care about Jesus. Give me what Jesus can give me, but I don't want to give my life to Him. Verse 14 is fascinating. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus found this man. And in verse 14, Jesus shows this man his true need. And it's an interesting verse, and it's a confusing verse. And I'm going to give it a shot here, and you can go with my interpretation or not. But I'll just say that there's many different views on this. But when Jesus says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, I immediately have to step back and say, what's worse than 38 years an invalid living in filth in a group of people who are also invalids? What could possibly be worse than that in this life? There's not a long list of things that can be worse than that. Is there? That I can think of. I mean, that's pretty close to the top of the worst. And what I think Jesus is doing here by saying sin no more, what I think he is doing is he is bringing this person from being simply a healed man. And what I think he is doing is I think he is penetrating this man's very soul. And I think he is driving him to consider some spiritual realities. And I think maybe by God's grace, when Jesus is resurrected and the Holy Spirit descends, maybe this is one of the 3,000 men that were saved. Maybe. I hope. I pray. Maybe this was one who was prepared by Jesus. Because when I hear the words, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, the only thing I can think of that's worse is a spiritual consequence. Like eternal judgment? Eternal hell? What is worse than 38 years in this life living an invalid? And when I hear Jesus say, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to me, I'm terrified. I'm terrified because if, I, if, if the, my sin is going to bring something worse than that, then I'm in trouble. I need some help. Right? At least that's what I think when I read this passage. And here's what I think Jesus is doing. What I think Jesus is doing is He's preparing the man. Driving the man to the end of himself. And I pray and hope that this man walking away is thinking, if I'm to sin no more that... Nothing worse may happen to me. I'm doomed. If I'm to sin no more, I'm in trouble. And if there's worse coming for me because of my sin, I sure do need help. And maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit just kind of did something in this man. When Jesus was resurrected, and when Pentecost came, he heard Peter's words. And I can just imagine, it's not here, so don't, I'm not saying this in the Scriptures, but I can just imagine this man listening and thinking, Jesus is the answer to my problem. He died for my sins. I don't have to go to hell because He died for me. Jesus showed him his sin problem. And Jesus is the answer to the man's sin problem. So what I think Jesus is doing is driving us to Himself. God commands us all through the Scriptures to do things that we cannot do so that we will see our need. Let me hear you say that. Let me, let me, I want you to hear me say this again. God is free to command you to do things you can't do. And you're responsible to do them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're commanded to do that, and you should. We're we supposed to. We can't. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. We are commanded to do things that even with the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we are commanded to do things that we cannot do. And He does that to drive us away from ourselves and to Christ. Amen. Because Christ did the commands in our place for us. So there's a representative reaction that ends up happening in verse 15 and 18. So what are these religious people going to do? How are they going to respond? Already they responded with condemnation. But look at verse 15 through 18. We're almost done. The men went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working, and until now I am working. And this is why Jesus, the Jews, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. 
So here's the representative reaction number two. Remember the first one was believe in Jesus, trust in him. The entire household believed Jesus is who he says he is. The second reaction, the man told him it was Jesus and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him because he broke the rules. Because he was breaking the Sabbath and because he claimed to be God, specifically. Those two reasons. Jesus breaking the Sabbath, Jesus was doing and saying things that they disagreed with. And to this day, when Jesus does things in his word that people disagree with, or says things that people disagree with, or when Jesus addresses a situation and says things like, deny yourself to anybody living in sexual promiscuity, you know what happens? People don't like it. And Jesus, if you won't affirm me, and if you won't affirm myself, and if you ask me to deny myself, like we talked about a few weeks ago, I'm out. And if Jesus doesn't fit in with how you, how people think he should be, people reject him. They don't like him. So Jesus does, says things you disagree with, then the right thing would be to not disagree with him. To agree with him, to believe. The second thing, Jesus claimed to be God, and to this day, people still reject Jesus because of these claims. Now, many don't even address these claims. They don't even talk about Jesus claiming to be God. They just say he was a good teacher. But here, in this passage, these people were crystal clear when Jesus said, my father is working until now I am working. It was crystal clear to them that Jesus was making himself equal with God, and they wanted to kill him. So he either is God or he isn't. And if people get face to face with that claim, they'll either have to say, well, if you're God, then I'm not. And I trust you and I believe. Or they have to say, like C.S. Lewis said, this Jesus is crazy. He's not who he says he is. And that's the point people get to. So how do we respond? Well, one, we don't respond to Jesus in this passage and want to kill him, right? We're believers. We have the Holy Spirit with us. What is your reaction to these signs? This morning, maybe we believe just like the official. And not believe. He believed in a specific way of like repentance and faith, but maybe in believing him to be the Messiah. But we're believers in here. How about we just simply enjoy the Lord? We sing to him, we just think about that greater miracle that he did. He worked in our life. These signs, he did these signs to show us that he had the power to forgive sin. And if he forgives sin, that you've experienced a bigger miracle even than these signs. If your sins are forgiven. And so we get to respond with gratitude. And if there's anybody in here that doesn't know the Lord, there's an option for you. You can rage against Jesus because he calls you to repent. Repent. 